I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Part of why I came forward was when I was in my first months at Facebook. There was um, a junior engineer I was talking to who was feeling really down. They had just had something they'd worked on for months and months that had meaningfully decreased misinformation in a systematic way. They had it rolled back. And I told them, you have to remember, this kind of behavior will not be tolerated forever. You know, we've had one genocide so far. When there's two, you know, the European Union will step in. And by the time we have three, well, people will be like, oh, this is really unacceptable. And by the time I left Facebook, we'd had our second one. It's kind of terrifying. I'm Sarah Wilson, and this is Wild, a show where we talk with the biggest minds in the world about the ideas that can help us love and save our one wild and precious life together on this planet. In 2021, Frances Haugen, then a 37-year-old algorithms expert at Facebook, became a whistleblower. She had spent three months copying more than 20,000 Facebook internal documents, which she then disclosed to lawmakers and regulators, the Securities and Exchange Commission and the Wall Street Journal all of which led to front-page-making revelations going global about how the social network knew about the harms it was causing, particularly to young women. But it also revealed how Facebook deals with political misinformation, hate speech, human trafficking, the promotion of ethnic violence and its communications with investors. Several months later, Frances revealed herself when she went on 60 Minutes and on the same day published a personal website, started a GoFundMe page to pay for the legal bills that were about to hit and announced a European tour to speak with lawmakers and regulators. She got onto it straight away. Facebook's market capitalisation dropped by $6 billion within 24 hours. In the six months after the Facebook files, as they've come to be known, dropped, Facebook's trillion-dollar valuation had plummeted by almost 50% and would continue to slide to as much as a 75% loss, including the largest single-day loss of corporate value for any publicly traded US company in history. Frances timed all of this a few days before she was set to testify on Facebook's impact on young people at a congressional hearing and has since testified in front of the US, the UK and EU parliaments, the French Senate and the National Assembly. As a result, in October 2022, the EU passed the Digital Services Act or the DSA. Now, it's the kind of story Netflix makes movies about, right? And perhaps they will after her book, The Power of One, comes out this month. But for the past 18 months since this all happened, I've often wondered who takes on a business worth $1 trillion solo? A business that sadly has become synonymous with the viral spreading of often venomous rumours and misinformation that can destroy reputations and lives in a mouse click. And who does it with such a calm, compassionate and non-adversarial approach? Some of you might have seen her on television during this time and the calmness was kind of kind of weird. This in itself actually became part of the, the news story, her calmness. And in an era in which so many of us are asking what it is going to take to change the world, to stand up to these multinational behemoths who run our lives with impunity, I've wondered what Frances Haugen has to say on it all. And so I reached out 
And to my delight, she said yes, she would love to join me here on Wild to discuss it all. Francis doesn't travel so much these days, so I am particularly grateful for this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Francis, thank you so much for joining us here on Wild. I'm sitting in an Airbnb, a very noisy one, in Paris. Whereabouts are you in the world? I'm home in San Juan right now. Um, I've lived in Puerto Rico for about two years. Um, I moved during COVID. Yeah, right. My understanding is that you moved to Puerto Rico in part for privacy, but also because of the warmth, which is something to do with an autoimmune disease, right? Hmm. I, I, I moved much more for the warmth than for privacy. Like a, privacy happens to be a, an added benefit. But so I have uh, something called celiac disease, which means that uh, I am allergic to gluten. So like gluten is not just a thing for hippies. Turns out for some fraction of the population, it causes the lining of your intestine to die. And uh, in my 20s, back when I was invincible, I did not take this seriously. And I ended up getting uh, malnourished enough that I got paralyzed beneath my knees. So you can even cause things like nerve damage if it's not taken seriously for long enough. Yeah, yeah, I I relate. I've got an autoimmune disease, Hashimoto's, and I tend to attract a lot of people who have autoimmune diseases as well. So there will be people who can relate. But in some ways, your autoimmune disease and then what happened as a result of, you know, the complications led you to where you are today because I think a friend had to come and help you for quite some time. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because it was a bit of a turning point for you. So in my 20s, you know, I think like a lot of younger people, I was very, very self-sufficient. And when I got sick, it was like a real wake-up call. I went from being able to ride a bike for 125 miles in a day to being in a wheelchair in about two and a half years. And during that recovery period, I had to confront my limitations You know, like it's a thing that is really hard for, I think, most people to do is, you know, admit what we can and can't do and reconceptualize, like, what does it mean to be myself, right? And during that time period, I hired an assistant who was um, a friend of my my younger brother's, and he became like a, a cheerleader and an ally and like a really vital force in my ability to like relearn to walk because like he was patient enough to like go on long, very slow walks with me and like was my cheerleader the whole way. And uh, in 2016, after Bernie Sanders lost the primary, he sought out places on the internet where he could commiserate with others who also felt frustrated about how the primary had went. And in the process, got sucked in some of the darker corners of the internet. And I watched this funny, smart, compassionate, well-read person go down the rabbit hole. And it really made me appreciate how sensitive we all are, right? Like if a a, a well-informed, smart, empathetic person can get led astray by conspiracy theories, by some of the, the more darker corners of the internet, I think any of us are vulnerable to it in the right circumstances. Yeah. And I think it was a little while later that you found yourself at Facebook and putting your hand up for a role in, you know, for want of a better word, the Department of Misinformation. I mean, that's not what it was called, but you were really wanting to work in that realm and your background was in algorithms. So maybe we can just jump ahead now to your role at Facebook and how it was that you came to know about the issues that you wound up disclosing to to the public. When people think about misinformation at Facebook, they think about things like, you know, the Hunter Biden laptop or, you know, what, what, what stories are allowed to be said or not be allowed to said. I didn't work on that team. So that team was the, the main, you could say, department of misinformation. The role that I got hired to do was kind of an acknowledgement of the limitations of that program. So that program commissioned fact checks. So basically some journalistic reporting on very, very popular stories on Facebook and then would demote stories that were viewed to be not factual after they were assessed. My group was put in place to deal with misinformation anywhere the fact-checking program didn't touch. And the part that was terrifying about that was that most of the world wasn't under the umbrella of the fact-checking program. So places like most African countries, uh, Southeast Asia, you know, even in the United States, remember there's only maybe hundreds of fact checks done globally every month. That's not a lot considering there's like 3 billion people. And so I was brought in to work on like, how do you more um, in a more systematic way, think about where does misinformation come from and how do you deal with it? 
Yeah, so you were rest of world, R-O-W, rest of, right? Rest of world, R-O-W, rest yeah. of world, yeah. Yeah, so from reading your book, it was something of a major trigger for you to come out with these documents witnessing how Facebook's policies affected ethnic violence in countries like Myanmar and then Ethiopia, I think, Ethiopia. Was a real tipping mm-hmm. point for you. So talk us through... I guess the, the logistics and the, the the bits and pieces that we wouldn't know about, right? We take yeah. it for granted that you know there's a little bit of fact checking done. There's something really out of hand. We expect that there's somebody in the background at Facebook. And this, I'm talking about we in Australia. I'm currently in Paris, but in America and and the English speaking world, money has been invested by Facebook into fact checking in English. But when we get to these other countries where they're speaking languages that only, I don't know, a couple hundred thousand people speak, it's a very different story. Talk us through what happens in those countries and the implications. I'm so glad you brought up, you know, that that right now we're talking to the English speaking world, right? Like almost by definition, if you're listening to us right now, you are on the cleanest, safest version of Facebook. So if you have kind of like, uh, like kind of some apprehension about Facebook, guess what? You're using the best version of Facebook in the world. When it comes to other places in the world or even your own countries for people who don't speak English or maybe don't speak one of the 20 largest languages in the world, you start having a very rapid degradation in the quality of the experience. And so what, what does that mean? So Facebook has decided that instead of systematically de-risking the the product, you know, figuring out ways like, you know, should you have to click on a link before you share it? Or, you know, how many times should you be allowed to reshare in a day? Or like, should your 50th reshare be treated the same as your first reshare in a day? Right. Are you kind of spammy? Because they don't want to work on that level. Which is what Twitter does, right? Twitter and a few other platforms. Yeah. Mm. So Twitter historically has done more of that. And it's interesting. I think it's for cost reasons, you know, like like going and, and censoring these products after the fact, content moderating them after the fact is, is requires a lot of labor. Um, it requires a lot of investment mm. in AI. And so Twitter said, hey, we're willing to accept tiny bits less growth. You know, when you require someone to click on a link, it does decrease Slow everything um, that down. growth. Mm. Yeah. It slows everything down a little bit. And Twitter said, hey, that's we're willing to accept that because we don't have the, the advertising dollars to pay otherwise. But for, for context for people on Facebook, because they're leaning heavier onto this, we'll clean it up after the fact. They have to rewrite those you know, janitors, those janitor AI programs that clean up everything. They have to rewrite them language by language by language or even dialect by dialect. Like if you have friends that live in Quebec, if you have Scottish friends, it doesn't matter that English or French are big languages. There's enough dialectical differences for things like hate speech, slurs, even just like how people talk that you're going to get both under enforcement and over enforcement. That means people taking down good speech or people missing bad speech. That's a really great way of explaining it, particularly in the context of what other platforms are doing. And really the motivation here, and this is primarily from what I understand being uh, the reason why you spoke out, is that Facebook is prioritising profits over the good of the planet, essentially. They're basically not prepared to take the hit that these practices that Twitter are using, for instance, they'd prefer to go and do these moderating processes. But of course, it's really only the English speaking world that benefits from it. So what ended up happening in Myanmar and Ethiopia? I mean, what kind of stuff is happening around the world as a result of this? So I think a lot of people are a little desensitized to when people talk about like, quote, Russian misinformation operations, right? Like, you know, we, we, that was kind of like a, a boogeyman of like the 2016 election or like, you know, when we talk about elections, sometimes that, those kinds of things come up. But, but the thing that I think people should understand is Russia has invested in how to run information warfare. And in the Ukraine conflict, the information warfare has been intense on both sides. They've been investing in that at least since 2000. And we know this because they offer those services to other countries. So in the case of Myanmar, the New York Times has reported that Myanmar started sending captains, other leaders, colonels, generals from the Myanmar military to be trained in Russia in information operations as far back as the early 2000s. And so by the time the junta triggered the ethnic violence back in 2016 and 2017, they had already laid down the digital assets Mm. for running like a large scale information campaign. And so at the moment when they decided now we're going to act, 
now we're going to do the, the ethnic cleansing. They could go and fan out these rumors, these, these, these lies about how dangerous Muslims were. And hundreds of thousands of people had to leave their homes, had to flee. And, and tens of thousands of people died. When I joined Facebook, that was the only known incident of ethnic violence fanned by social media that we had. And, and I want to be clear, this isn't like, you know, some random academic thinks this. This is like the UN issued a, a multi-hundred page report detailing Facebook's negligence. I remember. Things like, th- things like they only had one Burmese speaker. So Burmese is the language spoken in Myanmar. So it used to be called Burma. They had only one Burmese speaker in their content moderation org. And because the way the information flowed through those factories, people in leadership didn't even know it was happening until they, they, the information was brought in from outside. And so part of why I came forward was in my first months at Facebook, there was um, a, junior, a junior engineer I was talking to who was feeling really down. They had just had something they'd worked on for months and months that had meaningfully decreased misinformation in a s- systematic way. They had it rolled back. And I told them, you know, you, you have to remember, like, this kind of behavior will not be tolerated forever. You know, we've had one genocide so far. You know, when there's two, you know, the European Union will step in. And by the time we have three, well, people will be like, oh, this is really unacceptable. And by the time I left Facebook, we'd had our second one. It's kind of terrifying. Mm, was that in Ethiopia? And Ethiopia. Another, another, another situation where you had a junta using uh, misinformation spread on, on, on Facebook to fan violence against an ethnic minority. And of course, in these countries, they're not as uh, familiar with, you know, bot factories. <laughs> you know, they wouldn't suspect that the information was misinformation. It's not something that they've grown up with. It's all relatively new. And so that adds to it, doesn't it? So that's part of what's so scary in these situations is often, so like the case of Myanmar, Myanmar was something called a free basics country. So Facebook knew, they surveyed the history of, you know, where does disruption come from? Like, where does the thing that's going to eat your lunch come from? And it comes from the bottom usually, you know, like you, you don't notice like the, the, the kind of less lucrative corners of the market and someone comes in there and serves them and then comes and eats your lunch. For example, TikTok came from the only place Facebook wasn't allowed to play, which was China. Right. And so Facebook intentionally went into these very fragile places and said, we know data, you know, your ability to access the Internet is incredibly expensive. You know, it's, you know, ten, ten dollars a gigabyte, twenty dollars, fifty dollars a gigabyte. I mean, this is back seven years ago in countries where your monthly income might be one hundred or two hundred dollars. Right. If you use Facebook, your data is free. If you use anything else, you're going to pay for it. Right. And so in and so in a lot of these countries, when you pull people and you ask, do you use the internet? Do you use Facebook? 10% more people will say, I use Facebook than say, I use the internet because they but don't even know it. Yeah. that the internet is out there. So this becomes a huge problem when you have a situation like this because there aren't independent news sources. You know, like there might be a, a multi-million person Facebook group that is the largest news source for that country. But now you're putting yourselves in the hands of Facebook's algorithms. And so if Facebook's algorithms give more distribution to incendiary content, extreme content, you know, stuff that provokes a reaction from you, you're not going to be able to counter that narrative. You know, the narrative that the Muslims are coming for your children is scary. It gets an emotional reaction. The response of saying, hey, what's the deal with this? Like, blah, 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 blah. Hmm. Like, that's not going to go viral. Yeah, there might be some obscure journalist who's putting their hand up and saying, hang on, this yeah. is misinformation. I've read about it, you know, in newspapers around the world. Uh, you're absolutely right. It, it, it just won't get anywhere, especially when there's no internet as such. It's all coming yeah. via Facebook. Mm, mm-hmm. I see. That explains it super well. There's many layers of lack of responsibility, but also a business model that operates this way and you take it into these new territories and it's just fuel to a fire, you know, it, it can just take off. And of course, in the rest of the world, we don't see it happening until it's too late. And, you know, there's a, there's a military coup or an insurrection or whatever it might be. But one of the things I want to remind people, and I, I, I regularly do this in the United States, um, I've been doing a lot of work in Canada, and I, I bet this is true in Australia too. Australia isn't, you know, monolithic. Like there are a lot of English speakers, but there's lots of non-English speakers in Australia. And so one of the things we always need to remember is that our, our friends and neighbors may be forced to use a more dangerous version of Facebook if the way that they communicate online isn't in English. 
So these are not just foreign problems in foreign places. You know, our next door neighbors don't get access to a safe, clean version of Facebook. Yeah, well, we saw this during COVID. Some of those communities really got sucked into conspiracy theories because they were getting their information from, you know, different sites that weren't being moderated in the same way that the rest of us were having our information moderated. So there's a real schism. The other area that you focus on in your book, but it was also formed the first sort of tranche of papers that were released by the Wall Street Journal, uh, related to teen girls and their mental health and the way that the algorithms played into all of that. Can you explain how that worked and probably very much continues to work? Sure. Um, Actually, before before we dive into this, I think we should recognize, um, are are you aware the the Surgeon General issued a a warning on social media this week? Yes. That's a huge deal. And did that stem from your work? Was that a direct, you know, sort of, uh, I guess, result of your, what, 18 months, two years now of work in this area? You know, I, we, we definitely um, saw a lot of language within the, the notices and stuff that were issued around it where we're like, oh, that, that, that language sounds very familiar. You know, things like I'm, I'm, not, a, I'm not a social media absolutist. You know, I, I don't tell people like get rid of your, your phone, go to a flip phone, you know, like screens are bad for you. You know, it's, it's, you know I, I recognize the idea that social media can play a positive force in our lives, but we need to be designing to minimize harm and we need to be designing to maximize good. And that's explicitly what the Surgeon General said. The other part that I, I'm grateful on is we, we talk a lot about the idea that fa- we need to tackle these problems as communities and families. And uh, one of the most important things I can tell parents is like, your kids learn patterns from you too. And the Surgeon General was sensitive about the idea of like, hey, you know, you have to as a family make a plan, right? Mm. Like it's not because because a lot of parents also are, are good on their phones. But just for give listeners context, I think part of why the Surgeon General issued that that declaration, and for context for people who haven't been following closely, you know, the Surgeon General hasn't issued very many warnings like that. You know, it's like less than 20 in the last 50 years. It's things like cancer, smoking, seatbelts, drunk driving, you know, like really, really things that we're like, oh yeah, smoking causes cancer. We should probably smoke less. You know, like things that we take for granted now. When the Surgeon General came out and put like a flag in the ground and said, okay, we have enough information now. This is what we believe to be true. Breastfeeding, for example. We once was a time when we didn't breastfeed very many babies, right? Yeah. Seems crazy. But part of why the Surgeon General did that is the, the reality is we are, we are letting children loose on systems that aren't neutral, right? It's not like the kid goes into a library and their will and their choices direct how they move through that library. Like, yes, the kid might go for the naughty book section. The kid might go to something that you might not want them to read about, but it's not like the books are getting forced into their hands, right? It's not like they walk into the library and the librarian's like, last week you were interested in this. This week, <laughs> how about something more extreme, right? Um, and, and, and that can have really serious consequences. So like in the case of eating disorders, Facebook has run studies where if you take a brand new account, you know, no friends, no interests, this is not the person directing it. It's a blank account. And you search for something relatively neutral, like healthy eating, And all you do is each day you click on the first five posts, 10 posts, if they suggest a hashtag, you follow the hashtag. Over the course of three weeks, you get pushed to more and more extreme caloric restriction content. You know, you get into extreme dieting, you get into self-harm. And that's because the algorithm is always looking for what's the thing that is most likely to get you to engage with the app. And I'll give you a really concrete real world example of this. I got interviewed by a journalist and he had just had a brand new baby boy, you know, happy, healthy, cute, chubby baby boy. And they made an Instagram account for the baby. And the baby had, you know, five baby friends, four baby friends. All the pictures in these accounts are cute, happy, healthy babies. And yet like 10% of his feed was like mangled children, you know, kids in the hospital dying of cancer, kids after horrible accidents, kids with painful deformities. And he was like, how did we get from happy, healthy babies to children suffering? Like, how did this happen? And it's because the algorithm is blind. It doesn't know the meaning of this content. It just knows that if you like this content, you're not going to be able to just scroll mindlessly by a suffering child, right? And so when you leave a 10-year-old alone on a platform like this, and they're feeling like a little blue, you know, they, they look at a little bit of like emo content. 
you know, very rapidly that algorithm can push kids towards things like self-harm. And we've seen a great number of examples of children who, who, who kill themselves, who you look back on their accounts afterwards. And by the time they die, you know, half their feed is stuff glorifying self-harm. It's, it's one of these things where parents have to recognize these are not innocuous services. These are really serious things that can impact children or adults in really dramatic ways. Yeah, it's really interesting listening to you talk about that example because just the other week I was listening to a podcast that described how, you know, the chat GPT voice recognition stuff can now steer people in these really weird directions and you can have conversations. Well, you can you can have a conversation and say that you're down and the, you know, the AI can literally, you can wind up having it talk you into killing yourself. And I listened to a podcast oh, wow. where yeah. a journalist had quite innocently stepped into that realm and the conversation progressed and descended and of course they've got no moral compass these machines you know and these algorithms they're just feeding into what they think your mood might want reflected back at it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit get 30, bit get 20, 20, 20, bit get 20, 20, bit get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I think it's important for people to understand that these new AI systems, it's not that they understand the structure of thoughts, it's that they're trained on really, really large sets of text known as corpuses. And those corpuses overwhelmingly come from just the internet right now. And so if you think about it, like if you were going to talk to a therapist, you know, a therapist has a certain base of knowledge, a certain context on like what is healthy and unhealthy. Think about what the internet is like for people who are feeling blue, right? Like where do people go and talk about depression on the internet? There's a lot of dark corners of the internet where people don't necessarily engage with those feelings in constructive ways that will help them move towards feeling better. There's a lot of places where people do things like ruminate or or, or do plan things like self-harm. And so you can understand why it is an AI that was, you know, blindly trained on random text might suggest something horrific like that. Yeah, no, I get it. I get why it's happening, but I think, and we might get to um, to my question around that in a moment, but what I'd love to jump to is really why did you do it? (laughs) Why uh, why did you decide to risk so much personally? It must have been terrifying, and I've thought about it often. You know, I I was watching Mm. you Mm -hmm. um, presenting to to Congress over 18 Mm. months ago, and I know Mm -hmm. you've said, if people hate Facebook more because of what I've done, then I've failed. Mm -hmm. And I get the impression that, you know, you actually have been motivated by the idea of making social media and Facebook better, better places. Did you do it because you wanted to give them the nudge that they almost need mm. because they're not going to do it on their own? You know what I mean? Like, is, was that a motivating force or what else was it? So, so part of why I'm not a, a, you know, a social media absolutist. So like there's, there's definitely people who say, you know, these are toxic technologies. You need to log off now. I acknowledge the fact that, you know, Facebook is the internet for probably a couple billion people at this point. You know, we, we don't get to leave Facebook behind because the people who will get left behind are the, the most vulnerable and live in the most fragile places. And so that means we, we're left with a situation where, you know, we, we, we have to figure out a path forward. And it happens to be that path forward will also benefit us in places like Australia or the United States. 
The reason I specifically came forward was, you know, I've, I've talked about repeatedly the idea that right now, because you can't take a single college class anywhere in the world on how to design a social network and like, mm -hmm. what are the, the trade-offs and what are the consequences of those trade-offs? Because of that, there are only maybe 300 or 400 people in the entire world who really intimately understand how Facebook systems work and what the consequences are of the design choices combined with the algorithms. Most of those people are, are, are data scientists, um, engineers, people who are, you know, it would be, a, I think it would be a struggle for them to make that knowledge and that those insights intelligible to a broader audience. And so when I faced down this idea, this idea that, you know, Facebook's negligence was putting at risk tens of millions of lives in places like Ethiopia over the next 20 years, when I faced down that insight, I also saw that I was probably in a group of maybe 20 people, 30 people in the world who understood how it worked and could explain it in a way that the public could understand. The way I often explain it to people is you were one of 20 people who could save a life. You would at least think for a moment about would you do it? And if that number was 10 people, you would think longer. And if it was a thousand people, you would think even longer. And if it was a million people, you think even, even longer. And so for me, it, it didn't really feel like that much of a, of a, a trade-off because like I knew that if I didn't act and what I thought was going to happen happened, I would have to live with the fact that I didn't do anything for the rest of my life. I chose to be able to sleep at night. Like that's basically how, what it came down to. Yeah, I get it. You make the point uh, yourself in your book, and I'll just quote you here from the book. Hundreds of thousands of employees had passed through Facebook's doors before I had and had not acted. Many had burned out and left the company. Many others had stayed, worked very hard and accommodated themselves to the world-defining platform they were helping to create. What world could we build together if more people mm. woke up to their own power. And, and of course, that leads into the title mm -hmm. of your book, The Power of One. How did you wake up? I mean, what made mm. you do what, as you say, hundreds of thousands of people didn't? I mean, was it courage? Mm. Was it your dedication to truth? Was it that you just wanted to be able to sleep straight at night? Or was there something in and around? And from reading your book, I get the, mm -hmm. the sense that there could be something to this. Was it something about the fact that you, in your torturous, you know, thinking about this, your back and forthing on it, did you feel safe enough to exist in truth coming mm. from some kind of spiritual grounding? Well, I, I am a Quaker. So for context, for people who aren't familiar with the Quakers, Quakers are a Protestant denomination of Christianity that is pacifist, or the way I think about pacifism, there's many different ways you can think about it, is so, so imagine how much harder you would work to prevent violence if you knew that you had given up the right to defend yourself, like how would you change how you interacted with the world? And I always try to bring that to just about anything I do in my life. The idea that, that we have like a, a proactive obligation to resolve conflict um, because our, you know, our deepest desire should be to avoid whatever we can violence and violence takes lots of forms. Quakerism is also very strongly founded in the idea that, that we are all children of God and that our lives are profoundly valuable. I think a lot of the, the calculus that Facebook uses in allocating resources is done in an economic lens. A user that uses Facebook in Myanmar almost certainly loses Facebook money. Mm. You know, that user is not a profit generating user. When you go in there and say, okay, we're gonna give you a level of service commensurate with like the revenue you bring in. And just, just to give people context, the average user in the United States brings in about $55 a quarter. The average user in Europe brings in about $15. The average user in, quote, Asia brings in, I think it's like $450. And the average user in the, quote, rest of the world is like $250. That's all in dollars. You know, when you assign resources that way, instead of basing them on need, you put people at a profound amount of risk. Facebook is not being charitable um, one, preventing an organic internet from forming in those countries, you know, like preventing the chance for them to form their own version of the internet, but, but then actively neglecting it. And so, yeah, I think, I think this, this question around, you know, how, what kind of actors should we be when we go into other people's countries is like a really delicate one. 
And I was definitely motivated by the idea that every life is precious and that, and that we, we should fight for our brothers and sisters, no matter where they are in the world. Yeah. How long did you deliberate before you made this decision? Like I say, I've spent time, oh, a long time. thinking about yeah. <laughs> you know, what you must have gone through yeah. and, you know, the advice you must have drawn mm. to, to do what you did. So I, so it's interesting. Like I've, I, I had never really thought about what does it mean to be a whistleblower? Um, even, even when I was in the process of being a whistleblower until I met other whistleblowers afterwards. And I, and I think, I think I was incredibly lucky that I lived with my parents during COVID. I, I, I always talk to people who are like, you know, who ask me, I think I may have to blow the whistle. Do you have any advice? The thing I always say is you need to find one person that you really can trust that you can talk to. Because a lot of whistleblowers, you know, they become whistleblowers because they're holding a secret that impacts other people's lives. You know, maybe it literally is lives are on the line. And they, they usually hold that alone for a long period of time. And I became deeply concerned that something was in a very profound way wrong at Facebook as early as like the Iowa caucuses in 2020. So that's like February, 2020. But it took, it, I, it took like living with my parents and having that validation, like the ability to talk through and be like, Hey, I think, I think something is very off here. <laughs> something seems really wrong because I didn't, I didn't have to go on that journey alone. I had my parents to go on it with me. Yeah. yeah your mother, mother of course, is a priest. Yeah. Yeah. She, uh, so my mother, um, was a, a, a cell biologist, like, um, a scientist for most of her career. And in her fifties, she became an Episcopal priest. And so, you know, if you're having a crisis of conscience, having a residential priest is like a, the ultimate amenity. Mm, it would have been perfect during lockdown for many yeah. of us, I think. So yeah. I, I, in my imaginations around all of this, I sort of have this image yeah. of you, and I, uh, I guess I draw it from movies, I don't know, but late at night, dodging security cameras, mm. you know, copy things on the on the Facebook photocopier machine. Yeah. I mean, how did you actually do this? It's, it was over 20,000 mm. documents and mm-hmm. you know, collected over a course of months. How did you do it? Are you able to disclose how you did it? And I guess also part of my question yeah. is how you mind mapped how you would protect mm. yourself amidst mm. all of this. Yeah. So I can, um, I can, I can, I, I can say how I did it um, because, like, my picture shows up in the reflect, like, is, is reflected off the screen for some of them. Like, we've we've had artists reach out who want to do like art art installations that are like my reflection in the screenshots. So I, 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 there's no point in me hiding that I took, took those pictures. Cause like my face is there, but I have to be a little bit careful about talking about some of my, like how I thought about that process just for legal reasons. But what I can say is, and this is one of the things that I think is important to talk about is for people in general who are thinking about, they may need to document a system that is closed to the public. So more and more of our economy over the next 20 years is going to be run by systems that are, are pretty fundamentally unaccountable, right? They're going to mm-hmm. run in data centers. They're going to run on microchips. They're, it's not going to be like when we could buy a car and crash test it, right? And so there's going to be more and more people who find themselves in situations like I found myself, right? And that's part of why I, I talk so much about whistleblower protections and the process of whistleblowing and like, how should we govern these technological systems is that the problem is going to get worse before it gets better, if you find yourself in a situation like that, you know, I walk through in, in my book in pretty close detail how to think about ways in which someone might try to find you. And we, we, we live in an era where it is both easier and harder to be a whistleblower. So hypothetically, they could be monitoring anything that happens on your laptop, right? Yeah. Like, like I talk about in the book how one day I was doing a genuine work assignment. Like I needed to take a bunch of screenshots to document like how part of the product, the Facebook product worked currently. And I got like maybe eight screenshots in or something and it stopped letting me take screenshots. And I was like, Oh, interesting. You know, they have spyware on my laptop probably. I don't, I don't know for sure, but it seems that way. So things like that, where you, you know, on one side, what you're doing can be monitored, but on the flip side is, you know, if your employer allows you to take your laptop home at night, you can always go through and photograph tabs on your computer. Yeah. And I want to be clear. I'm not a lawyer. This is not legal advice. You do it at your own risk. Don't sue me if you go to jail. Go talk to a lawyer. I'm not a lawyer. But the but there is this interesting thing of this idea that companies are going to be facing a really important choice over the next even 10 years 
which is that young workers know they are disposable. Yeah. Right. We're watching these mass tech layoffs. You know, you are a cog in the machine. You may also be the only person who can help the public know what the public needs to know to keep itself safe. And companies have to choose between, I don't want to say fighting their workers, but they have to, they have to choose whether or not they're going to fear their workers or they're not because there are ways to prevent someone from doing what I did. You know, you can say you can never take your laptop home at night yeah, or, or we're going to spy on you really, really intensely. So like if we see you too consistently scrolling through documents too many times, you know, like you're, you're like the speed at which you scroll through this document is such that you could be photographing it. Like, you're going to get many, many more false positives than true positives. By that, what I mean is you're going to catch a bunch of innocent people working really hard. So your best workers, you're going to estrange them. Or your best workers are going to be frustrated that they can't go home and get in another hour or two of work in the evening after their kids go to sleep. And so it's one of these things where companies are going to have to decide, do we want to be intentionally transparent? And that way we know we don't have to fear our workers. You know, we, we know we're, we're, we're accepting we're going to have to, you know, work with the public a little bit more than we'd otherwise have to. But we don't want to have to fear our workers. Yeah. Or they're going to have to accept that, you know, every lie is a liability. You know, every lie you tell, you don't know when it's going to come out, but eventually it will. Mm. It's a really interesting way of viewing things, particularly as we see a parallel discussion starting to happen in and around AI. I think almost mm. yeah, totally. social media is a preview of coming attractions, but you know, on steroids when we're talking about AI, because I think some of the, the, the real conversations that a lot of everyday people are having is, hang on, Who's having the ethical Mm. discussions Mm. around this? Who is, I mean, you know, we now have got all the tech bros saying let's put a pause on things and a lot of questions have been raised as to the the benefit and also the vested interests behind that. Mm. But um, I think many of us do feel somebody's got to be discussing this. Now, from what you're saying, it's almost like it'll probably play out where these big behemoths are probably going to have to think about these things themselves because they're going mm-hmm. to have a general public but also employees who will expose mm-hmm. them if they're ethically compromised, which is, a, is which is an interesting way of looking at it. But I'm wondering if you've got any insights. I'm sure you're watching all of this AI mm-hmm. stuff yeah. very closely, the pause, the various debates happening. Where do you yeah. see that heading given your experience with social media? So I intentionally did not sign the pause because I think the pause is dangerous. I think the pause is really, really misguided um, just for, for context for people. So a group of people came together and put out a statement saying we should freeze training any larger language models than what we currently have today for six months. And the thing that terrifies me about that pause is it is, is partially like how historically misguided like the metaphors they used around it are. So, so they said, this AI is like nuclear weapons. You know, nuclear weapons are hard to make. And so we put in non-proliferation treaties and test ban treaties. So we slow things down. And like, we have an opportunity to slow things down right now. Just for context for people, how much money do you think the United States spent on nuclear weapons between 1949 and 1996? Like this number is phenomenal. So, so I'm, 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 I'm already, I'm already. Help us out. No, 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 no. Please, please make a guess. This game, I love, this is like one of my favorite games. So guess how much money we spent on nuclear weapons. 400 billion? More. Uh, keep trillion, going, keep a going. A trillion, a trillion. More, more. Oh, God. Uh, so it's, 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 five, it's, it's about $5 trillion in 1996 dollars, which is about $10 trillion today. 10.2 trillion. Um, yeah, $10 trillion, Just for context, folks, that's, a, that's thousands, billions, 5,000 mm. billions right? The gross domestic product of the United States today is, I don't know, it's like 15 billion or something, right? It's like everyone in the United States working for for nine months of the year, eight months of the year. So when we put in those non-proliferation agreements, when we did test ban treaties, when we said we're not going to build any more nuclear weapons, instantaneously we got a, a reward. It was like, it was like we were punching ourselves in the face and we chose to stop punching ourselves in the face. And suddenly everyone was like, God, I feel so good. Like, what happened when it comes to AI, these kinds of AI, you know, it takes tens of millions of dollars to train them. 
right? Like we're not talking billions of dollars. We're not talking hundreds of billions of dollars. And because Facebook was irresponsible and launched, like openly gave away their large language model, you know, you can have small teams, you know, we're talking 10 engineers build very, very complicated AIs. And my fear is that if you come in and say, hey, we're going to do a pause that only impacts a very small number of players, you're going to get basically nuclear proliferation, right? You're, you're not going to stop anyone. You're suddenly going to have, you know, 50 players you have to figure out how to deal with instead of five players. You're going to have yeah. 100 players. Because what are they going to um, do in this pause? It's not like yeah, everybody's exactly. going to be having exactly. ethical discussions about it. Um, because at the moment, it's the very, and dare I say, totally. men yeah. who are calling for the pause. And they're the only yeah. ones that seem to be yeah. getting in front of lawmakers yeah. to, to discuss this. And so, and so I think the, the, the way I think about it is like, I, th- I think we should learn from social media, right? So, so the first is we should come up with standards and expectations up front, right? So it's things like, I think the reason social, like I'm, I, I go through this in great detail about how social media is different than things like a search engine. Like why, why is Google fundamentally more transparent than Facebook is? And, and how that opacity, like the fact that Facebook could hide the consequences of its choices you know, led it to optimize for what it did have to show, which is profit and loss. I think in the case of these new AIs, we need to have mandatory transparency laws saying like, hey, you have to give open access for for various kinds of monitoring. You have to be transparent. So there's this thing called alignment. So alignment means let's not have the AI teach people how to build bombs. Let's not have the AI teach people mm. how to poison each other. You know, alignment says, like, can we give a moral compass to the AI? Are they aligned with the human endeavor? Yeah. You, yeah. Rather than working, human working against us. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, right now we don't get to see what those scripts are. So every one of these AIs we interact with has an ideology, but we don't get to make informed consumer choices about it. You know, having laws that say... Or, or even having things like Fortune 500 companies come out and say, uh, so like the largest companies in the United States, if the largest companies in the United States came out and said, we will only buy generative AI products that follow at least this level of safety. Yep. Suddenly there'd be an economic force pressuring a certain level of safety. And so that's that's the kind of things we should be talking about because they're they're mm-hmm. practical and we can do them fast and today. Yeah, I think that that's where the debate needs to be at this juncture is in and around transparency, which is, of course, what you have been fighting for with the disclosure of the Facebook files. I'm wondering, um, it's interesting, you do pin a lot of this on Mark Zuckerberg himself. And I think um, you were asked by Kara Swisher at one of her conferences what you would mm. like to say to him. I think she says she'd like to punch him in the face or something, but you were far she, more she, diplomatic. <laughs> she's had to have a lot more painful and awkward conversations with Mark. So I think I think her frustration comes from, from yeah. an honest place. She asked you what you would want mm-hmm. to say to him. To say and I think it's, yeah. you said something like, you know, why doesn't he do something different with his life? And I thought oh. that was really telling. Yeah. yeah. Well, the, the, thing, the, thing I, the thing I always say is, you know, if I could, if I could sit down with Mark for, for 10 minutes, I'd say, like, Mark, you know, you hold the capacity within yourself to be really happy. You know, like you, you, you have made public statements, public statements saying, you know, sometimes when you wake up and you look at your email, it feels like getting punched in the face. Like that sounds like a cry for help to me. And, and I think it's important for people to recognize Mark has been doing this as his sole focus in his life since he was 19 years old. You know, I think I think he's 38 now. That's half his life. And I, I really worry that, you know, he's stuck in a loop where he's afraid to imagine his life in a different way. And I've jokingly or half-jokingly said many times before that I think we need a free Mark movement like we had a free Britney movement, <laughs> right? Like, like someone is benefiting from Mark's suffering every day and hurt people hurt people. And until we liberate Mark Zuckerberg from his current prison, the world will keep paying the price. Yeah, that's a beautiful way and a very generous way of looking at it, Francis. I, and, but I do understand what you're saying. Hurt people hurt people. And I think that that is a way that we probably need to frame a lot of what we're seeing here because it is a certain type of person 
who goes ahead and launches these behemoth companies mm. with very little moral compass going on. And then they get on to this treadmill, which they then cannot get off. And so yeah. dot, 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 the apocalypse comes. They all become <laughs> and they don't want to be part of humanity. Yeah. They want to head off to Mars or into their bunk. New Zealand. Yeah. New Zealand, yeah, in, in the case of yeah. the field. And um, that's not a way to live a life. But do you reckon we no. can get through to them? I mean, if you sat down with t- Mark for 10 minutes, do you reckon we can get through to them? Because I agree with you. Yeah. We've got to go back to humanity. We've got to go back to mm-hmm. these fundamentals and sort of, I don't know, start from scratch. Do you reckon these blokes will ever get it? So I think I think we're actually in a we're on the precipice of a, a major change. And so so remember, the Surgeon General has only issued a very small number of these decrees. You know, very rarely does the Surgeon General come out and say, hey, we have an unaddressed health concern and it's killing people. Like these are preventable deaths. These people don't have to die. In this case, these these people are children. Right. Um, they have a lot of life ahead of them. And we're, we're cutting that short. Uh, and it, not even the kids that die, the kids who just have severe sleep deprivation for their entire adolescence. That's a cost they're going to pay for the rest of their lives. I think we're going to see, particularly because Europe passed something called the Digital Services Act about a year ago. And you um, had a little to do with that as well, right? Like you I, 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 I did spend a lot of time answering a lot of questions for <laughs> a long time. But, you know, I, I commented to my, my husband, because we're, we're about to go back to Europe for the first time in quite a while in June. So along with the book launch, we'll be at, we'll be in Amsterdam and I may be at Brussels for a week um, talking with some people about transparency and things like that. I, I commented to him that, you know, it's been about 18 months since I, I came out and I spent six of those weeks in Europe helping answer questions and shape conversation around the DSA. And so, you know, that works out to like a week every two months, you know, since I came out. The reason why that matters so much is for the first time the public gets to grade Facebook's homework or TikTok's homework instead of just the platforms. And what that unlocks is things like we've never seen protests, like large scale protests outside of any of these tech companies offices. And that's because we can't make demands. You know, we can't come Mm -hmm. in and say, hey, we need to see your linguistic equity, like your your safety by language, get better. Like we need to see the data. We need to see it get better. And we're going to start having that soon. And this is another one of these like half joke things. You know, I always like to say, you know, if we start gluing ourselves to the highway outside of Facebook, something will happen. Right. Yeah. And, and we need to be treating it as a, as a that level of problem. Yeah. Right. We, we, we can't stand by. You've put so much of yourself on the line. You've sacrificed enormously. You you continue to work doing all of this and fronting up to committees and and hearings and so on and giving evidence. And you've you know you've got results. There are parts of the world now who are working to your suggestion that there needs to be more transparency. So I want to ask, what do the mm-hmm. rest of us do? What should mm-hmm. we be doing with that transparency aside from gluing ourselves to the freeway outside? Facebook, what do we now do to ensure that we maximize what you've done for us? So I think there's huge opportunities in the next year in Australia, in Canada, Brazil. There's a number of countries that are starting to have conversations about how do we extend the Digital Services Act into more spaces. We need to be calling our representatives and saying it's time to act. We have blueprints for sensible legislation. And and one of the things I, I always try to remind people is that we have we really have two options. We can either pass sensible, moderate laws now, mm-hmm. or we can wait to pass emotional extreme laws later. And one of the things that I worry a little bit about is, you know, if you're on the fence about do you want to call your representative? Do you want to say, hey, we need to do something? You know, we're starting to see in the United States pretty extreme laws, like out of places like Utah being passed. You know, the time to act is now while we're still able to have calm, cool heads as we think about how to move forward. And as the number of kids who, you know, suffer increases, you know, people are going to get more and more emotional. And so the time to act is now. That's a really good way of framing things. I have one last question for you, Francis, and you've been Mm -hmm. wonderful to give me all of this time. I've got to ask you, was Mm -hmm. it worth it? And do you Mm -hmm. have hope that we are going to be able to write this wrong and get social media Mm. working for us? So first off, in terms of was it worth it? A hundred percent. Nothing, nothing, nothing feels as good as giving another person hope. 
And, and you have to remember, you know, the, the social media companies have spent hundreds of millions of dollars on a message that, you know, that we, we have to choose between freedom of speech and safety. It's like, oh, I'm so sorry, all these horrible things. But, you know, do you want free speech? When in reality, they had lots and lots of tools around how they designed these products where they could have made us safer without choosing good and bad ideas. Right. And when I sit down and talk to people, you know, usually the people who are willing to talk to me are people who care about these issues and they they often feel really hopeless. You know, they're like, I don't I don't know how we're going to move forward. I can spend I can have a really hard week or a really hard month and have one of those conversations where like I I, where someone at the end is like, we can do this. Like we have options. There's more possible, more possibility than I imagined. And it just like it just refuels me again, you know, and to end on like a really bright note, you know, this isn't the first time we invented a communication technology. You know, like we, we live in a very like a historical lens where we're like, we forget that other people have struggled as we struggle today. And, you know, when we roll back in time, you know, when we invented the printing press, huge numbers of people died. You know, it spawned conflicts in places like Germany um, with like the rise of Protestantism or even just like the rise of things like people printing, you know, pamphlets Pamphlets. about like, how do you know if if you, how do you know if your neighbor's a witch, you know, should you burn them? When, when, when should, when do you know you need to burn them? You know, like, like it sounds ludicrous today, but that really was a thing. But we learned, you know, when we got cheap printing presses so newspapers, we had full blown wars because of misinformation. But we learned, we developed things like uh, journalism schools and journalistic ethics and uh, media transparency laws and media concentration laws. You know, you can't own all the newspapers in one town. When we invented radio, it caused people to have very personal relationships with their leaders for the first time. And it fanned the rise of of dictators in in World War II. You know, but we learned. We invested in public media in Europe. We, uh, again, things like media concentration laws, uh, transparency. Every single time before, horrible things have happened. You know, it might get a lot worse before it gets better. But every time we have learned and we have responded, we have immense, immense power within us. And if the only thing that comes out of this book is that people realize they have options and they can want more, then I'll feel like I'll I'll have succeeded. I truly hope that you do feel that you've succeeded. Having read the book and followed what you've done, I do know that your aim is to actually make this landscape healthier and to be functional. It's not to see, you know, Mark Zuckerberg be torn down. I share the same ambition for the guy as you do. I really do hope that he can find some peace in his lifetime, you know. Imagine how much good he could do if he like pulled a, a Bill Gates, you know, like yeah. what, what if he was like, what if he was like, malaria is my goal, like no more malaria in the world. Like, yeah. like, that's what I dream for Mark. Like, go, go imagine more. He could atone yeah. and address uh, female mental health yeah. issues globally. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. He's a young yeah, guy. There's, there's He's a time. young guy. Mm. Yeah. Um, Francis, I absolutely love this conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thank um, you so much. I really enjoyed how Francis framed a bunch of things in that conversation. It's super interesting to hear how her deep adherence to nonviolence via her Quaker faith guided her in her decision to speak out, which, as I say, I have thought about often over the past 18 months. I can't imagine how lonely she must have been during this time, and particularly in the lead up to making that decision. It's interesting to note that the bulk of whistleblowers in these kinds of industries are women. I read about it in a tech publication a while back. And it's even more interesting, or maybe just related, given how underrepresented women are in the industry. As I mentioned in that conversation with Francis, this big tobacco moment for social media is a portent of of what's to come with the AI debate. I'm not sure the parallels are perfect or direct, but we should certainly learn from what is going on right now with social media. And Frances makes really good points to this effect. She says we we need to put the laws in place now, right, before it actually gets too difficult. And we need to fight for transparency as, I guess, a starting point. We also need to remind ourselves that this is what we've always done. You know, we let the tech overlords have too much power for a bit. We stuff things up. There is corruption and a whole bunch of messes and collateral damage. But then finally and hopefully we fight back and we get legislation in place. 
I would urge everyone listening to get on top of this subject so that we're all alive to what's going on with each technological iteration. Things are getting faster and more stealth, right? And perhaps you may want to read her book, The Power of One, which should be out by the time you listen to this podcast. Okay, don't forget to rate and like and share this podcast, whether you're listening to it on Spotify or Apple or wherever you, I don't know, what is it? Listen to your to your podcasts. Um, and also this is the last episode for a little bit. I'm just going to have a four-week break. I look forward to, I guess, speaking with you, having more of these conversations then. Until then, stay wild. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.